Hi everyone, welcome back to the Just Interesting People podcast. My name is Rosie, I'm here with my co-host and husband Jeremy, and today we are talking to Juliana. Juliana was born in South Korea, but she moved to the United States pretty early on as a child. We talk about how it was to grow up in a Korean household. We also talk about her life in LA when she was working as a writer and eventually she became an author. But then we switch to racism and we have a really interesting talk about how it wasn't easy for her parents to accept her relationship with a black man. Uh, but it was a really interesting and different perspective on racism than some narrative that we usually hear. Juliana also suffered, and she still does, from depression. And she really shares with us how this affected her entire life and also her career. And she gives us her view on antidepressants. And she has a a view that might be a little bit different than what most people say. Yoga really helped her a lot to get better. So she decided eventually to pursue a career as a yoga therapist, which is a little bit different than a classic yoga teacher that you might know. So stay tuned for that. And... To finish, Yula talked to us about her podcast, The Phoenix Tales. Enjoy the show. Hi, Yulana. Thank you for coming on the podcast and welcome. We're excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. We haven't met in person, actually. I was just figuring this out. <laughs> we haven't met in person. Uh, we have spent a few hours online together. <laughs> during our yoga teacher training and also um, thanks to Royal Flow TV. We've been messaging a lot and stuff, but yeah, we haven't actually met in person, which is a shame. We'll make it happen. Yes, definitely in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really happy and excited to have you on the show because you, you're, I say that a lot, <laughs> but you're the definition of an interesting person, I think. Uh, you have an, an amazing story and an amazing background and a lot to share. And I think we could, speak for hours honestly so we're gonna try to stay focused and stay on track (laughs) (laughs) well i think i'm Um, I'm flattered i don't think my life is all that interesting but thank you for having me um we we're gonna start with you know the the basic i think that's gonna be really interesting uh you are born in south korea i was born in korea um and i came i think i was about five i'm not really sure um and you know my parents came from um like most immigrants my father had been running a company um you know my family were i guess for korean standards back in those days we were fairly well off and my father had served it during the korean war um, for the u.s military because he spoke english and um i think he always well he came to seattle it was sort of you know, a lot of stuff of my family history is kind of catcher. I don't know. We don't really talk about a lot of it. So he came to my understanding is he came to Seattle during um, the training portion and came to the U.S. in the 50s. And you can imagine big cars and wide roads and, you know, U.S. in the 50s was kind of like at its apex of, you know, that idea of the American dream. And so I think he always had this kind of fascination with it and at some point decided that he wanted to immigrate to the U.S. And he was able to, um, probably because we had the financial means to get somebody to sponsor him and to bring all of us over legally. Um, And they started over 
And, you right. know, for my mom, that was incredibly um, traumatic. Um, mm. And to, you know, I think this idea of immigration today is um, different because we have this idea that immigration comes out of or is born out of desperation, right? But I yeah. think in that period, in the late, um, early 70s, late 60s, when there was a huge migration of South Koreans, it wasn't out of desperation, not from my family standpoint, but more of this idea of um, the possibilities that this country held, right? Right. And yeah. because Korea is so incredibly stratified, um, socioeconomically, the education system is incredibly stratified, meaning if your kids don't test into certain schools and definitely certain universities that, you know, back in those days, that really kind of um, will set the, the direction of your life, right? This idea oh. that you can reinvent your life was not really a possibility in Korea. I think that's mm. changed quite a lot um, in in the last, I would say, twenty some years, um, especially as you know, Korea's become a leading industry for entertainment and fashion, and so many in cosmetics and so many things, Ecology, electronics, yeah. exactly. That I think that has kind of changed. But back in that period, it it, it was a very different world, and I mm. think for mm. my dad, my dad wanted each of us, um, I have two older half siblings to have opportunities that he thought maybe we couldn't have, you know, if we didn't have the capacity to test into the proper schools or anything like that. It wasn't about financial yeah. pressures as it was more about his um, hope that we would be able to kind of succeed in this model right of a very very sort of rigid world yeah so i um and then he unlike other korean immigrants did not come to new york or to la he settled <laughs> in suburban philadelphia we still don't know why um and i mean to this day I'm, i mean now of course um where my parents live there's a huge huge influx of korean immigrants i mean they have a mm. korean supermarket behind their house mm. when you know when i was growing up we had yeah. um i think my dad used to drive us into new york city to the korea little one street back then 32nd between fifth and broadway where there was a small korean market <laughs> Um, and you know, now I don't live far from there and I do go down onto that street, but it, so he settled in Philly and, you know, my parents worked really hard. They, um, you know, had owned businesses and then started to own properties. So mm. I grew up, I guess, in the American, um, equivalent of sort of an upper middle class family in suburban Philadelphia. And I, um, unlike a lot of Korean parents, my parents were, they were very, um, and they still are very encouraging of me to do different things. So there wasn't this expectation that I should go to college and be a doctor, which was never going to happen given my lack of mathematical skills and math skills. <laughs> Um, and, and they, 
you know, and at one point I thought maybe I would go to law school, but that really didn't hold. And I think they always believed that I would write and they mm. always sort of encouraged that. So <clears throat> I went to George Washington University um, because when I was growing up in high school, my parents sent me to um, different countries. So I was like an exchange student in Japan in high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, they sent me to Korea one summer. So I'd had sort of more of like a transnational upbringing in my mind. And, That's amazing. Um, I went to GW to major in international politics because of sort of this exposure to kind of a broader world, even though I grew up in a very suburban area of Philadelphia. <laughs> So I went to GW and spent um, three years there. I did a year actually in London at a university uh -huh. in London. Um, and at some point, you know, decided that maybe this, you know, the Foreign Service exam to be a diplomat is probably the hardest exam you can take. It's harder than uh -huh. the um, Fulbright exam. So in my the Elliott School in School of International Affairs at GW, which was you know next to Georgetown, is like a very good program. Um, there are two tracks to go. You could either get recruited into the CIA, sort of doing like intelligence work, right, or mm -hmm. you could end up you know going sort of the route of of a diplomat into the State okay. Department. And I pretty much realized that. As much as I thought I wanted to work for the government, I didn't actually want to work for the government. Mm -hmm. And so for a hot minute, I thought I would join the Peace Corps and did a lot of research and went to talk to people in the Peace Corps office and so forth and decided that that was probably not a good option either. And because I'd always been writing, I thought, well, maybe journalism would be the way for me to go. Mm -hmm. So my... Um, when I came back from London, my the summer before my senior year, I actually got an internship at CBS Evening News at the local affiliate in Philadelphia and was there for the summer and helped get like an interview with Ben Bradley during the Oliver North trial. And I was yeah. a little favorite intern of all the, the uh, reporters, so I would get asked to go out on stories with them. and. They're all really great. And the news director in Philadelphia basically took me aside and said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I have to go back to GW. And I said, but I would love a, an internship at CBS. And so he called down mm -hmm. there and he basically got me an internship at CBS Evening News at the Washington Bureau. Wow. So I did that my senior year um, working in the research department. So I would put together research for, let's say, Leslie Stahl, if she was doing a story on Iran-Contra. Right. Mm. I would do all of the back. We would do all the background information, put files of information together for the reporters and then like hand them off. And I thought that I was going to be a. Uh, a journalist and I um, had a reel uh, like like any other reporter would and sent it out and had one person who I think he was head of an affiliate group that had stations in the Washington Seattle area and he was coming to DC and he wanted to meet me and he sat me down and he just basically said look 
you could never start in a market this size. So you have to go to places like, you know, Omaha and Kansas or wherever um, to get your start. And work your way over. Right. Uh-huh. And he said, and you've got, you've got the chops for it. And I was like, okay. Um, and in the meantime, I'd also applied for this fellowship at WCVB up in Boston, um, which is a, a local affiliate up there. And they had this fellowship called Leo S. Baranek Fellowship, where it was a paid year internship to be at WCVB. And half the year was like on training, you know, covering stories alongside a reporter. The other half of the year, you might be on air actually reporting stories. And they, and it was specifically designed for um, minority candidates. So I got you know, uh, taken up to Boston, they, you know, paid for my fare to go up. And I still remember the day, there were probably about 10 of us. And I was the only non African American candidate. <laughs> they were all mm-hmm. African Americans. Um, uh, and they basically took us into a room and they handed us like three APAI wires. And you had to write like a three, three minute blurb based on the wires. And then you sat for an interview, a, a round table of, um, you know, like their investigative jur- uh, reporter, the head of the, you know, the news director, like all these people in the room just firing questions at you. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, yeah. And it, it was a long day. And I don't know. I think <laughs> at that point, I had decided that I um, didn't want, I didn't think that I wanted to be a journalist necessarily. And so when you finished, they, you know, sat in this room with all the other candidates and then, then they called you in one by one and told you how you did (laughs) (laughs) just to add to the, you know, add to the stress of the day. Um, and I walked in and I, I'll never forget it. So Andy Rooney, who used to be on 60 minutes, his daughter, Emily Rooney was the news director Uh and I walked in and, and they, and and the investigative reporter, I think his name was Jorge something, um, he was like, you're the most qualified out of all the candidates, but you don't want this. And oh. and I was like, um, and Emily Rooney basically said, we don't doubt that you're going to do something, but we can't give this fellowship to someone who really does not want to be there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and which was fair. So yeah, fair yeah, yeah. So I thanked them and came back to to DC, um, and then decided to maybe go because I wanted to write work in publishing. So I got a job at Yale University Press right out of school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had interviewed at the pub, like the bigger publishing houses in New York, um, but thought that Yale Press was more interesting just because it was a it was a university press camille paglia sexual persona was one of the books that year that they put out so i worked there for the summer and i've never been surrounded by so many smart women all middle-aged um who were so profoundly unhappy it seemed to me and all the upper management were men and all of the editors and all of that were women, right? So I did that thinking that, you know, I didn't see myself um, sort of staying at Yale Press. I didn't see myself moving to New York right away. 
And just on, on a lark, um, I decided to move to LA. And when I made that decision, um, because of my writing and sort of my background, I was able to um, get some interviews with some film companies. So when I moved to LA, I worked in as what they called a development girl, which is basically I read a bunch of scripts <laughs> for okay. my bosses and then told them whether or not the scripts were any good. Um, mm. And I ended up in a job um, working for a company that was actually owned by Sylvia Berlusconi. Um, he was, yeah, exactly. He was one of the owners, um, Pebby Gize, whose family runs UJC, which is one of the biggest mm -hmm. distribution companies in France, was the other yeah. owner. And then Tarak Benamar, who's um, Tunisian, very wealthy Tunisian. And his claim to fame was he made some pirate movie that cost a gazillion dollars and was the biggest flop in the world. But the three of them formed this company and I, I was their D-girl. So, um, and the head of the, the company, that was my direct boss, he was Italian. So it was really interesting. I got to sit in a lot of different meetings because um, this company was set up to basically come in and provide funding. So they had money and the the way the deal would have worked out was we would, you know, give you two million to do this film, but we would retain all the rights distribution wise, you know, they would carve up the world. Right. So like yeah. Europe and parts of it, whatever it was. And because we had money on the table, we were a very attractive company. Because, um, you know, in Hollywood, everybody's looking for money to get their projects <laughs> financed, right? So, you know, we I sat in meetings with Henry Winkler, who wanted to direct this film. Um, it, it, was, it was a heady time. It was a very stressful job. Um, the industry is um, everything that you can imagine it is, meaning <laughs> the good and the bad. Um, mostly the bad and it in some ways for me it was just soul crushing to be in mm. a, how old were you I was 23 mm. so it was a lot um and it was you know it was I was having fun I had friends I was hanging out in LA you know like living in LA when you're in your 20s is awesome right yeah. and um and I had a job and whatever you know, as much as I hated most of the job, it you know, I still sat in meetings with like Shelley Duvall and, you know, Henry Winkler and um, who was the other one? Charlton Heston's son who wanted to direct, you know, called me all the time about his project. You know, it was just like, it was like a weird time, right? It's just like, weird. <laughs> it was like Hollywood, right? <laughs> so I, um, I was starting to make myself ill because of the stress of the job. And basically my father just said, you've got to quit. This is ridiculous. So I left the company, but I had formed enough relationships um, that I basically then transitioned to be a freelance script reader. And mm -hmm. you basically get, get paid a couple hundred dollars per script. You read a script, you write three pages, um, summary of the script and then your okay. thoughts on the script hmm. and um, I was reading for a ton of different companies and was able to support myself doing that there's so many jobs that I don't know exist in the world 
Yeah. You know, like we don't, we don't, we don't know that thing. Yeah, I mean, but that's like Hollywood, right? Because nobody yeah. reads. I mean, that was the so other part. We don't know. My boss, I would hand him like a script analysis, you know, and we would be walking into a meeting, and he would say, "What's the script about?" I'm like, "Did you not read the three pages I sent you last week?" I mean, like we're talking about five million dollars, and you haven't read it. He's like, "Oh, it'll be fine," and, you know. He'd go in there and wing it. I'm like, "Oh my god, this is unbelievable!" Right? So. So, so I did that for a while and it was always my intention to come back to the East Coast and specifically to New York. And then I met my husband and um, I was 26. He was 26. He had just finished law school and he had just started. It was like his first month at his law firm job um, with the secretary that was, you know, as old as his mother. And we met and we fell in love and Mm. his career was there. And so I ended up staying in LA sort of indefinitely. And it, that was probably the hardest, um, so we were together for four years. And my husband's African-American and um, you can imagine how well that went over with my parents when they found out that he was black. <laughs> um, really? And, oh yeah. Um, oh. And we got married when we were 30 and right after we got married, I applied to graduate school to get my MFA in creative writing. Oh. And the programs that I applied to were mostly on the East coast. So for the first um so we got married at 30 i started grad school at 31 or 32 and for two and a half years of our first five years of marriage we were apart i was doing the bi-coastal thing so that i could do my graduate work and um so my parents were shocked um not shocked that i married somebody non-korean i think they were just shocked that as my father i think said at one point black he's black where did she come up with that like he couldn't even imagine that that was even a possibility in my life um so my first novel is really based on my experience with them grappling with their own sort of issues of race which we understand because we're also ethnic minorities that we're not racist, they're just ignorant. And they're, mm. you know, because we don't have any power. Because um, racism is based on a power dynamic. It's a construct, right? Um, mm. And and it, and they, they got over it. Um, they have a beautiful relationship with my husband. In fact, um, I think if I divorced him, my mother would probably have to take a little pause to see which one of us she would be. <laughs> <laughs> side do I choose right and it's like the jury's still out not sure which way she'd go on some days um but yeah so my first book was sort of born out of that experience um not fully biographical but I think a lot of the emotional things that I experienced um you know because for me that was a mark that was that was a moment where I really did become fully independent of my Mm. parents, you know, 
they didn't set a lot of expectations of me, but their Korean parents and Korean parents, I don't know if you watch any of these Netflix Korean shows, if you've watched any of them, you might have a clue as to what Korean parents are like, um, that it was a moment where I really firmly stood my ground and said, this is the person I want to be with. Um, and it was not done out of spite or anything, but that I love this person mm. and that they had to respect my choice. They didn't have to love my choice or even like my choice, but they had to respect my choice. Yeah, to accept, yeah. And, and so we negotiated the first, I would say, five years, really, um, me setting clear boundaries with them about what was acceptable. Um, and, and then them really rising to the challenge, you know, so the reason that Koreans are, um, you know, they're very, um, the country itself is not multicultural, right? Um, much like Japan and Korea's history with the, the sort of the military, U.S. military um, being stationed in Korea. Um, there's always been this weird stigma of a Korean women with military men, right? Because it was a certain type of a Korean woman that would end up with a military man. Right. And mm -hmm. then you add to that the complexity of race of them being mm -hmm. black, right? Because there are mm -hmm. plenty of black soldiers in Korea. Um, so I think there, you know, my dad's 93, so he's old. And I think those old notions of what was acceptable, right, I think colored his perspective on um, our marriage initially. Yeah. But like you said also before, it's, it's, it wasn't racism. It was ignorance and, and a matter of, um, different culture and education, just different point of view in life. It wasn't like a race, race issue. No, it wasn't. I mean, you know, yeah. And you have to remember at that time also in LA, we had the LA riots, right? And I don't know mm -hmm. if you know anything about that, but that was basically the way the media played it out was that a bunch of black people were burning down Korean businesses, right? Which really ah. was not what was happening. Um, and so there were, there were a lot of these inflection points culturally also that kind of created this narrative in, in the U.S. at that particular moment that there was this real tension between Koreans and African-Americans. Right. And, and some of it was justifiable, right? So there were a lot of Korean businesses in African-American neighborhoods, and a lot of it was based on real cultural misunderstanding, right? Like, um, this is like a small example. So Korean business, business owners wouldn't hand you the money directly into your hands. They would push it across the counter. And in a way, that's a sign of not showing you disrespect, but like their way of respecting your space, right? Mm. But for for Americans, that's a sign of disrespect, right? Like, and so there were all these little things. Yeah. So there were many inflection points. And so that also colored, I think, my dad's real anxiety about us getting together. Um, and, you know... My husband said to them, 
the world is different for us than it was for you and for his parents. Um, it will be different for our child, our children. And, you know, and my father was just really worried about, um, I think he saw things that I didn't see, just kind of the level of racism that could really affect my life, you know, um, my my husband's life or, you know, children's lives or whatever. And, you know, when you're 26 and or, you know, we got married at 30, you 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 think you're invincible. You think that all of that worrying and, you know, is is needless and you think that yeah. the world will change and that you can rise above it and all these things. And now, you know, almost 30 years in, I have said to my husband, especially in this past couple years with, you know, the, the George Floyd thing and, and our son now is 18 or 19 and he's now seen as an adult and he's a brown skinned man. Right. Mm. Um, that, I, if I had known how, how hard it would be at times, I didn't know, uh, I don't know if I could have really mm -hmm. stepped up to it. You know what I mean? I had that kind of naivete and, wow. and youthful hopefulness and whatever it was. Right. But mm -hmm. looking in the rear view mirror 30 years later, I, I, I wouldn't change my life. And I love my husband. I love my son, but just to see the the level of um, how how deeply ingrained racism is in this country, and how it affects you know people of color, specifically black people, day in and day out, is something that if I had known that really really consciously at that age, might have given me pause to say, wow, am I prepared, right, to yeah. do this battle. And did, did you did you feel it as well as uh, a Korean born? But different, yeah. and you know, and that's a whole that's a whole. Um, so there's a stratification in our culture, in our country, in terms of race as well, right? And so, for Asian Americans, we're sometimes almost as viewed as white, but we're not, right? Meaning we mm. get to sit at a lot of tables that black mm. women or black men don't get to sit at as comfortably, mm. right? Mm. It's, it's even more damaging in some ways because we have this false sense of being fully accepted when we're really not. And so when you mm. have somebody that all of a sudden one day says something to you like, how is it that you speak English so well? And you're like, well, because I have a fucking master's in English, right? Like it takes your breath away because you, yeah. you, you, you've been sitting at these tables for so long, it's unexpected. Mm -hmm. So um, while I have felt, um, you know, obviously race, racism, I haven't, I, I can honestly say, and I've said this to my husband and he finds this absolutely shocking that there are days where I am not reminded the, of the fact that I'm Asian, right? Hi. There's not a moment in my husband's life where he is not reminded that he's black and that he's a black mm -hmm. man, 
right? Yeah. So that different level of consciousness of our understanding of ourselves in this world is very profoundly different. Um, and I think for me as a parent, that was probably the most painful part was in realizing that I can't fully appreciate what my son experiences, uh, right? right. Um, even though he's, he's half Korean, right? Mm. Half black, you know, he's both. I can't fully appreciate what he experiences day in and day out. And as a parent, that is breathtakingly painful, right? Mm. Um, it's, you know, parenthood is the one moment in life where your heart gets ripped open and you, your vulnerabilities, or you feel the most vulnerable every day, all day long, right? Because mm. you're terrified of, you know, wanting to do a good job to raise this child and making sure that the child is not, you know, damaged by the world or whatever. Like you just are, your heart breaks open and you're never the same. And then you add to that, that other layer of the, um, the unknown, right? That yeah. having to have conversations with him when he hit about 12 and he was no longer just a cute little brown boy where, you know, you have to tell him things about the way the world sees him and that because of that, he can't behave in certain ways that his friends who are white can. Uh -huh. And that's a hard that's a hard thing to um, face as a parent. And then it's made complicated by the fact that I'm not black, right? So I know black parents have this conversation with their black sons and black daughters all the time, but they've lived that experience, right? Yeah. So they, yeah. they have a, a deeper, closer understanding of it. I'm having to have that conversation and it's ripping my heart apart because for me, like I can't relate to it on some level. Um, mm. so that, you know, so again, so, um, if, mm. if I, if I had known how much strength they would have taken to, to be, um, married to him, um, who is the most amazing husband and father, um, I think I would have had to think about it. And I think that's what my father was actually worried about, right? That it wasn't that my husband wasn't good enough for me or that he thought he would be a bad husband. It was more about the way the world, right? And yeah. how hard it would be for us as a couple and for me specifically as the wife of this man. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I get it now at the, you know, 30 years later. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that it's, it's, it's something you get later in life, but um, it's, it's, it's really interesting how, you know, human being, we, I tend to judge people. We shouldn't, but we do, I do. Uh, and... And yeah, like I've never thought about that, you know, like, for example, like, yeah, he, his reaction was coming from a place of love. Uh, he, yeah, that's the side of, you know, the story, for example, I don't think I would have thought about. Um, it's yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing that. It was really, really interesting and eye opening for me. Yeah. And, and my and my book touches on the complexities of, of, you know, what, um, and, and the complexities of race when, when you're talking about, you know, we are also ethnic minorities, right? Um, you know, as I always, especially during this past year with COVID and the amount of assaults on Asian women, 
you know, yeah. in New York and in other places, right? That um, were ethnic minorities, but yet even in in the world of um, people of color, that there are these stratifications. And for my father, it really was more about, I think, shielding me from um, the potential, you know, heartaches and and the challenges of. And he said that, like, what are you going to do when you raise, when you have a child? And, um, and my husband's argument was, well, the, the world will be different for our child than it was for the two of us. And, and it was for the two of you and for my parents, right? And he's right on some profound level, but on some profound level, he's not. Because, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> right, you know, we're still circling the wagon on some of these issues still to this day. And um, so from that standpoint, you know, um, my father was his strong reaction, um, as heartless as some people might have thought it was, was really based out of his own fears for me and mm. for our life together. Yeah, I mean, he was protecting his little girl, to put it as simple as it is, uh, in a sense. But also, I feel your husband had an amazing reaction, in a sense that, you know, that, that could have uh, brought a lot of tensions and stuff like that and I mean he probably did but the way he handled it seems like he was being really mature and adult and, and conscious and that we will make it work rather than just saying you know I don't want to have to do anything with your parents because they don't accept me or whatever and just deal with it uh, coming up with solutions and answers rather than just anger and yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, as my mother always says, he's the most ad adult person in our family. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, his reaction was profound, but I also made a conscious choice um, that when my parents came around, that I would never, ever, ever hold it over their heads that they um. put us through this. And to this day, I don't. Mm. And it was a real conscious choice on my part, you know, which was that I was gonna meet them more than halfway. I mean, I, I had um. clear boundaries, but that it wasn't my job to punish them for the rest of their lives, right? Um, punish them for fear, which was really what it was. Yeah. Um, and so to this day, when my mom gets weepy about certain things, it's me comforting her and saying, it's okay, mom, you know, we've all moved on. Um, and it was a real conscious decision on my part that I would never punish them for what had transpired, you know, mm -hmm. um, because it wasn't fair. You know, they were coming from a different world. They were coming from a place of love and protection um, I know a lot of other people may not have viewed it that way, but I did. And because I made that conscious choice, I think it also paved the way for them to have a more profound relationship with my husband, right? Because I wasn't, yeah. I was not there every day punishing them for the fact that they had acted somewhat horribly in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. That I was opening them up and saying, welcome on my terms, right, but welcome. 
and it's not my job to punish you for the rest of your lives for what it had transpired. There's a lot to learn here. <laughs> <laughs> the world would be a better place if everyone was acting like that. Yeah, I mean, it, I and it was a conscious choice on my part. Um, you know, and uh, my mom still has moments where she feels horrible, you know, and and I'm the one comforting her and saying, Mom, why are you why are you crying about that? It's great. You know, I just decided to take this approach of I have boundaries, but I'm also forgiving them of their fears because that's what it was really based on, right? Their fears. And that if I wanted to have a relationship with them, that was going to be different. And also for them to have a relationship with my son that mm. um, I had to set the tone and it could not be from a place of, you know, punishing them for the rest of their lives for causing some amount of duress, you know, in the beginning of our marriage. So that was a choice that I made. So it's, it's, it's always interesting and it's always, I feel, around turning 30 years old when you realize that your parents are just human beings and adults like you rather than you know gods or master people or whatever like they're just human like us with the flaws and and you know, the yeah they're just figuring out life yeah and, <laughs> and i also like felt like they had punished themselves enough right and um, and it wasn't my job to continue that right there was no um, point in it and and especially if i wanted them to have a wonderful open relationship with their grandson um yeah. i couldn't we couldn't have that or they would not be able to have that if i were always holding it over their heads right that oh well you made it so horrible these first few years of our marriage and you did x y and z right that it would have actually altered their relationship that they would have had with my son and for yeah. me it was more important that my son feel the unadulterated love of their grand of his grandparents right not mm -hmm. shadowed by what had happened in the past because they accepted him wholly because they're his you know they're his grandparents right yeah. and um so i think i think a lot of people do view what i did as some remarkable thing but i also did it out of a place of compassion um because I saw no point in um, punishing them for the duration of our relationship with each other, right? For mm. them acting out of a place of fear and concern. Um, because it wasn't about my husband. There was nothing about him that they could disagree mm. with. It was really their fears about for me to be married to someone who is black, understanding the complexities of that in this country and in this world. Mm. And for that, I couldn't continue to punish them. It wouldn't have been fair. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> How did you decide to write a book about it? Uh, have you always been like a book girl reading books? And you, you said you were writing a lot as a young person as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think my parents thought that I was going to be a writer before I knew that I was going to be a writer. Um, I always say that writers um, 
I don't know. Some of us try to run from it as much as possible because it's a very hard life, right? It's a hard thing to do. Um, like yeah, and I was definitely one of those. Could if you if I could find something else to do that um, um, I found as torturous and beautiful and you know fulfilling in different ways than I would have, right? I always wanted to be a florist. Like I was like, I would love to be a flower designer. <laughs> flowers don't talk to you and, and and it's aesthetically beautiful and you create something that other people appreciate um so my the genesis for the book really did was born out of my experience with my parents um but um and i i remember this i was about to i was about to start grad school and i knew that in grad school to apply to grad school, I had submitted a bunch of short stories, but I knew that when I was in grad school that I was not going to work on a short story collection, but that I was going to actually work on a novel. And um, so, and I still remember this, and I knew that I wanted to write about sort of this experience of what I had with my parents, but I didn't want to write, you know, a biography of it. Um, mm. And I was cooking dinner and we were still living in LA and I was just about to go to grad school. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't want to write about the couple because, you know, to me, that's just a cliched story. And I had this epiphany. I was like, oh, we'll just kill them off. And you're going to write about the two mothers. And, <laughs> and it was like, oh, yeah, right. That. It, the, the 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 story gets so much more textured and complicated and and more challenging because it's these two women these two mothers right and for the korean mom it's a story of recovery because she had been estranged from her daughter because her daughter had married this black man uh -huh. and so for her it's a double loss right she lost her daughter once and now she's really lost her daughter and so for her it's a story of trying to piece together the last 10 years of her daughter's life. Mm. And for the African-American mother, it's a story of just her grief um, and coming to terms with, you know, the pain and what she felt and what she knew her son had felt in the rejection by, you know, her daughter-in-law's family. Mm. Um, and I wrote the first chapter, um, and then I was sort of stymied and I was talking about it with a friend in grad school and he gave me this brilliant idea. He said, you know, he's like, what's so great is because I wrote it from the first chapter is really from the Korean mother's perspective. And my friend Steven said, but I want to, he's like, there are so many moments where I was like, I want to hear what the African-American mother is thinking. And I was like, oh, that's mm. it. He solved my structural question for me. And so the novel really goes back and forth between the two narratives of these two women, right? Both working through their grief and kind of coming to terms with their own relationship with each other and their children and their de de dead children. Um, so I think the, I wrote the first draft in grad school um, and, and then I wrote many subsequent drafts later. Um, before it got published and um, you know 
it, it's a, it's a hard book and it was really interesting when it was published because I was waiting to see and and this is I've, I've had conversations with other writer friends people never see themselves in these books right so for my father like he didn't really see himself in the father character oh. it's really brilliant how that happens um, <laughs> whereas my mother-in-law was like so when I did this and, and, and my husband's like mom it's not you it's based on a character she's like oh, i know i know but when i did that right in the book it was like wow okay. um she related Awkward. to it. well i think because for her it's a very um sympathetic portrayal right i think okay. when yeah. when the portrayal is a bit um a bit more challenging it's easier for the person to be like that's yeah. not me at all right like my yeah. daughter just made this character up out of thin air a whole cloth right um so it it um so it went through many iterations i was invited to a writer's conference in aspen and there's a beautiful writer named robert balish that i was um in a workshop with and he was absolutely just a typical writer, just a complete raconteur and hilarious. And we would spend nights just like drinking and laughing and, you know, and he, he read the first chapter of this book and he's like, what are you doing with it? And I said, oh God, I don't know what I'm doing with it. You know, I've done so many drafts and I have no idea. And he said, I have a, I have an editor you should work with. And I said, okay. And he said, so, you know, I'll introduce you to him and, I'm sure he'll want to see a chapter or two and then he'll decide if he wants to work on the book with you. Uh -huh. So I sent it off to this editor and um, we subsequently worked together. So a lot of writers mm. to do this, they work with a private editor. And Walt is still my editor. Um, he He's um, brilliant, um, just a really good sounding board and um you know finesse things out of me that i couldn't see um because you're so mired in it you know like you can't mm -hmm. it's, yeah. you can't see through yeah the you're forest. missing the yeah that kind of myopia it, it, you know can d sort of distort things in a way so i um had the good fortune of working with him um sadly robert bausch died um about five, six years ago, which is a huge loss. His twin is also a very well-known writer named Richard Bausch. Um, but anyway, so my book got published and I spent a year, um, you know, doing book readings and things. And I had, um, I had what was classically postpartum depression um, but untreated, meaning I refused to get medicated. Mm -hmm. And um, it was quite apparent in LA. I had a very good therapist. Um, we went back and forth about it. I was very, very reluctant to try any kind of medication because I, and nobody really could tell me how it would affect my creative process. And um, so, I found all these other coping mechanisms to sort of help me with this postpartum depression. But when you don't treat something for so long, right, it just gets slightly worse year by year. 
and the year that my book was published and I was sort of running around the country um, doing readings and so forth was a really, really tough year for me. And at the end of that year, um, it was 20, when was it, 2012? Yeah, 2012, um, December, I had a full nervous breakdown and ended mm -hmm. up in um, the psychiatric hospital. And part of the condition of me um, being able to leave the hospital was that I had to agree to medication. And, right. I, you know, um, had fought it tooth and nail up until that point. And now I was in an institution where they would basically have not let me <laughs> leave if I didn't agree to take something. So after a great deal of negotiation with the psychiatrist, um, we settled on a medication with the least amount of side effects, and I mm -hmm. went on medication. And it was a, a long journey um, post-hospitalization. Um, and I had been doing yoga, but the the going to yoga was like part of my therapy, you know, mm. I remember going to the first class, you know, after getting out of the hospital and, you know, the thing about being in a, um, sort of an institutional setting like a psychiatric hospital is that unfortunately there's not been that much progress made in psychiatry and the treating of mental illness. So all the things, all those movies that you can imagine, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and <laughs> um, mm. there's not been that much of an evolution, right? So mm. electric shock therapy is still used. There are many people who had been in and out um, a number of times who sort of as a last resort or again coming back around to doing, you know, electric shock therapy in the ward with me. Um, so it was a really, really, um, I don't even know how to describe it, but it felt like I just was so not broken down, but felt so raw emotionally and mentally. And mm. yoga, like I would go into my first down dog and I would like sob, you know, it was like this one space where I could really let the grief of what I had just experienced to really um, be expressed in a private way, right? And so as I was piecing, and I say this, um, as I was piecing myself back together, it was like, I just got shattered into a million pieces when I was hospitalized that somewhere in the back of my head, I was like, you know, there's something about this practice that's helping me, but I don't know what it is. Mm. And it sort of piqued my interest um, in wanting to, to know how or why. And, and up until that point, I thought I was going to go and get, uh, my PhD um, mm. and I wanted to do sort of an ethnographic study of uh, French rap 
I wanted Interesting. <laughs> well, I wanted to use the lens of sort of post-colonialism to look at how those who had been colonized were now, in a sense, repatriated to the the colonizer, and in a way, mm. and and reshaping the culture, right? And and French rap was like a great sort of window into that in terms of language and and so forth, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, I know. I still think about doing that um, that PhD. But anyway, <laughs> so I was listening. Like I was not expecting that at no, all. No, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> that came out of nowhere. You wanting to study French rap out like. <laughs> as an ethnographic study, right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Um, as more of like a, just because culturally, unlike the U.S. and and Great Britain, you know, French culture they don't really accept this idea of multiculturalism, right? This French mm. is like you're French, you're French, right? <laughs> they're like, yeah. doesn't matter. Like, like they say, yeah, you like it or you leave it. And we all understand that that's like just a bunch of BS, right? That there's many stratifications and a lot of things happen. But because of this kind of um, refusal of multiculturalism, what it's done is it's created a great, like this dissonance has created all these expressions of artwork, right? And rap is one of them in the ways that it's changed the French language. You know, you can kind of see how it's sort of permeated, right? And to me, it stems from this very French notion of like, they don't believe in multiculturalism. You're French, you're French, right? Um, And and Especially in the 90s as well, we had a few like singers and band like NTM and IAM and stuff like that that were like so... They literally changed so many things, in, culturally speaking. They became so big out of nowhere that they had such a massive impact on on normal people. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of where I, I was kind of thinking about this during this period. Um, and then I got sick and I went down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out for myself how or why yoga was helping me. And, um, I had, you know, my son was finally at an age where he could, um, basically be somewhat self-sufficient. Um, and I did my first teacher training, um, oh my God, when was it? 2013? Something like that. And I just kind of fell into teaching immediately. Um, and, and all the while for me, my philosophy of why I was teaching was trying to, for myself to kind of peel the onion back as to how or why, you know, this practice had helped me. Right. Um, it was as if I I like to describe it as when I had my breakdown, it was like, I was shattered into a million pieces and, in the process of putting myself back together, yoga was a way that enabled me to do that, right? Mm. So it was so my it was really born out of a curiosity to figure out how um, it was helping mm. me, and and then I fell into teaching, and I knew pretty quickly into the teaching that I wanted to teach from a therapeutic standpoint because of mm. my own personal experience um, with it. 
And, and so I dove down that rabbit hole and I guess I have slightly OCD or something. (laughs) (laughs) um, We sort of never looked back, but the good news was um, in spite of all my fears about medication, styming any sort of creativity, I was able to write a second book. Um, Mm. And that was hugely important for me. And I feel I felt as though the second book in some ways was probably the most honest book. Um, People won't won't see it that way because people, you know, as I always say, you know, for fiction, what happens is as a writer, you fracture your life in a way and there are bits and pieces of your life that will come into the story. Right. But it's not the totality of your life in some ways. Mm. But when people read the two books side by side, they're going to draw natural parallels to the first book, then to the second book. In a way. Mm. But for me, emotionally, the second book is a much more honest book and is probably closer to the truth of who I am than the first book was. Right. So, um, and, and I, and then I started teaching and then I, um, started a yoga therapeutics training program, um, and didn't, know what that would mean or what that would entail or what that would look like at the end of the day. Um, and, and then along the way I started to build a private practice business and, and then I finally got certified and then I became a yoga therapist. And Could you explain for people listening who don't know what a yoga therapist is, could you explain what you do? Because people maybe know of yoga teachers and then therapists but can you kind of talk to us about what that actually means? Yeah. So there's not talk therapy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So yoga therapy is really taking the modalities of yoga, right? So all of the modalities of yoga, whether it's um, therapeutic, restorative, you know, meditation, mantras, uh, the asana, all of the modalities of yoga and it's applied in a very um, therapeutic way, but also a very clinical way. Mm-hmm. And so part of our job is to, as I always say, you know, if my client shows up and they're having a, a flare-up of their fibromyalgia, I'm going to treat the flare-up first, right? But really my job is to get sort of to the root cause of what is at the root of the fibromyalgia, right? Uh-huh. And and it's the way I look at the job is it's like a constant peeling of the onion, right? To get to kind of the core of what's really going on with each person. And 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 each case is different. You know, I have worked with people with Um, herniated discs, right, who've had surgeries, who've had a flare-up. I've worked with people with just straight-out stress, and then the stress manifests in all these different ways of, you know, sometimes they'll develop skin breakouts, they'll have sleep, you know, regular sleep patterns, They'll have eating issues, all, you know, all the ways in which our bodies can start to fall apart, right? Mm. And our job is to really use all of the modalities of yoga to treat the whole person and not just the symptom. And it's, um, we don't diagnose. 
So a lot of what I do is very intuitive, right? Mm -hmm. They'll tell me that their doctor says I have fibromyalgia, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a herniation disc in L3, L4, right side. Great, right? Mm -hmm. It's not my job to diagnose. Now, if I see certain things, I may make suggestions that they go and talk to their rheumatologist or, you know, and say, you know, could you bring this up and see what they say? Um, Mm -hmm. But... My job is really to help them to, more importantly, become empowered in their own health. So it's like this unspoken contract where you have to kind of show up wanting to get better, right? And you're part of that process because it's not Western medicine. I'm not going to write a prescription and that's going to make you feel better for a time, right? (laughs) This requires the two of us. It's like the way I always look at it, it's like it's a mystery we're solving and the two of us are going to solve it together, right? But it's the two of us doing it. So Mm. I I work with stroke patients. I've worked with, obviously, back issue patients, um, uh, chronic pain sufferers. Um, After COVID, there's going to be all kinds of mental health issues, right? Which will then manifest into physical issues, right? So... It's a, it's a beautiful way to look at and then take the modalities of what the yoga practice provides us to allow the person to be empowered to make changes and, more importantly, to be more in tune with what's going on in their own bodies, right? Because that's really what we're getting at. Yeah, what I like about the way you present it as well is um, there is... The pain there and like you said rather than just trying to hide it or to numb it or whatever is let's try to make you feel better so you're not physically in pain every day but let's also go deeper than that and understand the root cause and let's try to work on that so eventually you won't need this medication or whatever for the pain it's it's just going to be solved actually f- because of the root cause and And I I want to get really clear about this because um, this is where I have a lot of um, sometimes criticisms. I hear sometimes yoga teachers saying to think, you know, to students or whatever, oh, oh, and there's always a little bit of judgment like, oh, you take that kind of medication for that. It's like, no, it's not our job (laughs) to Um, have any judgment about anybody being on medication, right? my job is to empower them, right? To, to be an active participant in their own health. Now, in, during that process, they can then somehow come off the medication because their blood pressure has been controlled better. Awesome, right? Uh-huh. But there's no judgment. There shouldn't be any judgment on my part or on any yoga therapist's part if they have to stay on medication, right? And I think I feel very strongly about that born out of my own experience because I still am on antidepressants, right? Um, And I've tried. We've tried lowering the dosage. We've tried all kinds of things, my doctors and I. And, um, And at the end of the day, I function better when I am on my medication at a certain dosage, right? Doesn't make me less of a yoga therapist, doesn't make me less of anything. It's just a condition that I have to treat, right? Like any other condition. So that's the that's the one philosophy that I'm I 
hold very strongly to. Um, there may be other yoga therapists out there who may feel differently. You know, like their their modus operandi may be like to get them off medication. Let's get my you know mm -hmm. client off medication. It's like, well, that's all well and good. That would be the best outcome, right? But that can't be my objective the whole time, right? Because then that's colored by my own prejudices or my own belief systems. And more importantly, we're not medical physicians, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it would it would be a disservice to the client if that's my objective, right? And I'm like strident yeah. about it because it, you could ultimately do them harm. And, and the mm -hmm. harm can be not just getting them off medication, but giving doing harm in that they feel bad that they have to take the medication, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're really yeah. doing them a disservice because yeah. some people have to be medicated on certain things. That's just that that's the fact, okay? And do I believe in over-medication? No, right? But if there's a, a consistent, persistent issue that cannot be controlled by... 10 hours of meditation, well, they need to be take medication for it, right? <laughs> At some point, like the medication needs to come into the picture. I have to say during the yoga teacher training, you're, when you talked to us about medication and antidepressants, it really kind of opened my eyes because I think the way that I had been told by, I don't know, even know who society, I guess, is that antidepressants are for weak people and you should just be able to do yoga or meditation and move past it and I also thought it was very addictive and you could then maybe get onto other substances whatever that means I don't like I was so uneducated and I thought that um so I had a friend talking to me about maybe going on antidepressants and I was like no please don't well I didn't say that but in my head I was like oh my god please don't do that because you might not ever get off them and then it might lead to worse things and you won't be able to feel what you normally feel and you'll change as a person. And I like, I didn't say any of this to her, but I was so worried about her going on antidepressants, I said it to Jeremy, <laughs> but I was so worried about her going on antidepressants because of what I'd heard. I don't even know where from. Well, we all, yeah, that's what we, all just we have hear these. in general. Yeah, but it was so interesting when you were saying, well, I take antidepressants and I, like I have done for a while and I will continue to because I function better. Like it's not a bad thing. And it was just the way that you broke it down really kind of opened my eyes to it and I was like you know if you had another disease or illness or whatever you would treat it so why why is the depression treated so differently in terms of oh just meditate and do yoga and you'll be fine if you need medication you need medication and I have to say thank you for like opening my eyes on that because I think I was so ignorant to it and it really helped me kind of understand it a lot better like a lot better for me and also for you know people around me who maybe want not want to go on it but you know would need it would need more yeah medication and things so yeah the stigma around mental health issues is something that i um find really troubling and especially after covid we're going to have just a, a crisis of mental health issues yeah. seriously mm -hmm. um whether it's through addiction because people are sitting at home and all they do is drink because they don't know what else to do it's that self-soothing thing you know like we used to suck our thumbs if you were self-soother that way you know it's all these things I think for me, um, the because of my own experience, because again, I fought it for 10 years, right? Mm. Fought, fought, fought really hard. And I remember my mother asking me, what was that like? And I said, and this was like the best um, analogy I could come up with. I was like, mom, it, was, it took every ounce of energy for me to run in front of that truck 
and just run, 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 run. And um. finally, one day, I just couldn't run anymore. And the truck just mowed me down, right? So the fact that I was able to stay off medication for almost 10 years, because the, the depression started as postpartum, right, uh-huh. is born out of my sheer will. And that I did have certain coping mechanisms like exercise and yoga and, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's a clinical issue. And that no amount of exercise or meditation was going to help me, right? Uh. And all of that running in front of the truck finally got the better of me. I just got tired and, and the truck mowed me down. And, and so my place of kind of my opinions about it is based on my own experience of having fought it for so long. And I don't have a lot of regrets in life. In fact, I don't really have many. But the one regret I do have is I wonder how differently those 10 years might have been if I had um, medicated myself, right? Uh, right? How much more productive could I have been? Could I have written two more books? Could I have been a different mother to my son, um, right? I think about that more than anything else. I don't think about um, the fact that I finally ended up in the hospital and apparently for me, that's what needed to happen in order to be medicated. Right. I had to go to that extreme that it took that for me to then see that I needed this help. And, and as I always like to say to anyone, if you have high blood pressure, why wouldn't you take medication? Right. Mm. If, 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 because you could run the risk of stroke or heart attack. Right. It's the same thing with depression. If you suffer from depression, why wouldn't you take the medication? Because there's stigmas mm-hmm. attached, because it's mental health. Yeah. And yeah. so I suffered from the same stigmas, which is why I fought it for so long until I ended up in the hospital and I had absolutely no choice. They were not going to let me out unless I decided to, unless I agreed to something. Right? So it was either that or I'm sure, you know, electric shock therapy. They were not going to let me out. So I had no choice. And, and I'm not going to say that my journey with the, my, my own self-acceptance of both my illness, but also the fact that I have to be medicated has been, you know, one rosy trajectory of, you know, glowing self-acceptance. It's been long. It's hard. Mm. I still have days. I just had a relapse and I was devastated because I'd been doing so well for so many years, right? Um, so as much as I talk about it, I talk about it from the standpoint of, I talk about it cause it's still my own struggle, right? Yeah. It's not something that I've beaten, nor do I expect to, I just get a different perspective. I get a deeper understanding of it. I also can put it into the context, uh, culturally, right. Of how people view mental health, um, mm. And I guess is why I am determined to at least get people to have a different kind of conversation about it, right? And I think Mm -hmm. I talked about this in the training where we talked about, somebody asked about, you know, that they were depressed when they got divorced and blah, blah, blah. And I, I talked about there's small d depression, which is sometimes caused by external forces, right? Like uh-huh. you experience some cataclysmic life event could bring on, uh, you know, depression with a small D. That 
you could treat with medication, but does not mean that you're going to be a lifelong medicated person, right? Uh-huh. And then there are the rest of us who are just biologically disposed to be depressed, uh-huh. right? And and it's not a cataclysmic life event that'll offset or set off the depression, right? And and it's like any other medical condition that has to be treated and has to be monitored very, very carefully. So, you know, I have a very different perspective about it. And I know that even in the yoga world, I still encounter a lot of, um, and it's not ignorance. Some of it is ignorance, but it's, but it's um, well-intentioned that's gone awry. Like people are well-intentioned, but it's wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? Where you have yoga teachers telling students like, oh, you know, meditate. It'll make you feel better. It'll help with the depression. And I'm, and I'm like, no, please don't say that, right? Mm-hmm. You don't understand what this person's depression is or has been, right? Mm-hmm. How dare you? How dare you prescribe something that is not, maybe may not be suitable for that person? And you could be doing damage, right? So I think that's where I get a little bit strident about um, sort of the yoga community and the biases within the yoga community about mental health and how Uh um, there's this assumption that meditation and yoga is good for everything and can cure all. And it's like, well, no, some of us cannot be cured by just yoga and meditation, right? It's also interesting how a lot of people have really extreme opinion and it's black or white and the the way you are presenting before the yoga therapy and, and it's really the approach that i really like is yeah on one side i can't say it's right that if you have any health issue physically or mentally like just take the pills and it's gonna be fixed no that's just probably numbing the pain and and it, that is not a solution uh and also yeah just Meditate 10 hours a day, that's not a solution either. Like it's it's a balance and it's medication, technology. I mean, we've been working for I don't know how many years to get vaccines, to get pills, to get things, to improve our health and life in general. Let's try to use that wisely. And also maybe let's try to use some alternative to uh, work on the root cause. And, and it's a balance. Think. Yeah, um, and, and I think the balance is that, you know, the more that people are um, able to, and mental health is tricky, right? So if somebody has high blood pressure, they're not going to have a problem taking medication for it, right? Yeah. And nobody around them is going to look askance that they're taking high blood pressure medication, yeah. right? There is a stigma attached to mental health, and yet we are going to have a mental health crisis when this pandemic is over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this, it's the stigma that probably stymied my ability to accept that maybe I needed a little help. Right. Um, it's the, it's, and it's what will stymie somebody else from saying that they can meditate their way out of a full on blown depression. Right. And that's the unfortunate part because again 
the brain is still so unknown. <laughs> Mental health is still, in some ways, yeah. still very barbaric in its the ways in which it's treated. Okay, medications have gotten a little bit more finely attuned, right? But we're still using electric shock therapy, right? Um, is there any proof? Sorry, is there any proof that that helps at all? Because that sounds. I don't think we do that in Europe, do we? I don't know. Like, I'd never heard of that in in England or France. And then a few people have mentioned it in America. And I'm just like, that may... I, I don't know. Is that me from an outsider? Or, like, does it actually work? Does it help? Does it anything, do anything? Is it, it helps certain people. Um, okay. I think in in the beginning, it, it was barbaric. You know? Yeah. Um, when you see those movies where people are strapped to the tables. And I think today they're still strapped to the tables, right? It's just that I think things have been a little bit more finely attuned, but that's my way of saying, because it has to do with the brain. There's still so much that's unknown, right? Yeah. And and that's where some of the stigma it, it comes from. Um. And that, you know, I think I talked about this in, in um, the training, right? There's depression with a small d. That can yeah. be circumstantial, right? Like you go through a divorce, go through death, whatever. Like that's small d, right? And there are many, many different ways to treat the that uh, therapy. Maybe some form of therapy, medication. Doesn't have to be forever, right? Then there are those of us with the big D, <laughs> where we are just biologically designed, right? Mm. And that requires the same amount of um, sort of focus and attention to treatment that any other chronic illness needs. But because it's mental health, there's so many stigmas attached to it, right? Um, and I think I've become more vocal about it because especially in the yoga world, right? It's not every day that a yoga teacher's like, yes, I'm on antidepressants and I've been hospitalized um, and I'm fully right. out here talking about it all the time, right? Um, um, and I do that on purpose because I'm sure there are students out there, right, who have experienced some aspect of that, whether it's a uh -huh. small aspect or a full-blown aspect or whatever, you know? And, and it's a way to humanize the experience so that hopefully the stigmas start to get worn down, right? If somebody can say, well, my yoga teacher, you know, she's on, she is on antidepressants and she, you know, whatever, right? That maybe mm. that'll take away some of the stigma of what mental health is, which is it's an illness. It's just yeah. that it has to do with the brain. I think the other hard thing with mental illness is that you can't see it and you can't measure it. There's not a test you can do to figure out if you're, you know, between a one and a 10 or if you need to, you know, it's something that you can experience, like you experienced it for 10 years and didn't, I don't know how many people you told about it, but definitely didn't, you know, seek the help that you needed. And I think that's the hard thing is because you can't measure it and see it physically like a bone sticking out of your finger. You can see that and you, you can see you need help. It's such a hard one for people to realize they need help, but also to understand other people. Because you know, I if Jeremy's struggling mentally and doesn't tell me, I can't see it, so I can't, I can't know that. So it's such an interesting health problem crisis. I don't know that you know you can't. It's, it's just different to other 
illnesses I guess is what I'm trying to say and it's hard to kind of see in other people it's and you're absolutely right because there's no way for us to measure right there's no there's no test for me to take to see how bad my depression is other than I can't get out of bed Mm. right um so it is it is it is and that's why the stigmas around it are so profound and deep because there's so much still unknown about it. And even in the treatment of it, if you look at it historically, it has not changed much, right? Mm. The medications might have gotten a little bit more finely attenuated, but really, right? We still use electric shock therapy. There's still mm. padded rooms, you know, like, you know, people can still be put in straitjackets. I mean, like, it hasn't evolved because the mm. brain is still so unknown. Mm. And and I think that's probably the hardest part of what um, it is to have mental illness and for people around you to understand it. So I just had a relapse um, in August and um, it was shocking for everybody. Um, and yet my friends who had been through it with me the first time um didn't make a big deal about it just made sure i was doing the right things that i needed to do right which is um to up the dosage of my medication to be talking to my psychiatrist more talking to my therapist more you know whatever that needed to be done and Uh um it you know i have a different perspective of it now almost 10 years in of living with it and and it was really interesting to see light bulbs being kind of turned on by those around me, right? Um, when they saw me just kind of fall apart. And it was slow coming, but it, it happened. So it's an illness that has to be managed. And that was for me a reminder that I needed to really spend some time and manage my own illness again. Um, so it was a good lesson and it, it, it got me to think about things again um, and for me to be open about it. You know, I was being very... Can I ask, um, when you say you had a relapse, was it that you'd stopped taking it or that the depression had overcome what... Was it that it like, took over from medication if that makes sense like it kind of yeah it was just that yeah exactly that it you know um I think there were a number of um things going on in my life and Uh the medication was not helping um and all of a sudden I found myself unable to get out of bed for days right Uh and for me um when I am in that state, like I don't eat, um, I was eating once a day, if that, um, mm. spending hours in bed um, and not able to function. So. Did you see it coming? Did you feel it coming? Yeah, you know, that's the, that's like the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've, I've never, never experienced that, that's what I'm asking. It's, it's, it's like... And, and it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question because it's something that my therapist and my psychiatrist and I all try to figure out, right? 
um, there are definitely patterns that I noticed. Um, <clears throat> one of the things for me that happens um, is that I lose all appetite. Mm. Um, and I hadn't had an appetite in a couple of months. And I remember saying to my husband, like, you know, like we would go out for dinner and I would order something and I would take a bite and be like, oh, I don't want that. Right. I just mm. have like zero appetite. When I was really, really depressed, um, I think at one point I weighed like 92 pounds, um, not because I was trying to lose weight, but I just didn't, couldn't really eat. Right. Mm. Um, so for me, that's always a trigger. Like when I have, um, and, and because I, because I don't have a big appetite as a person anyway, but mm. I view f food as like this very social thing. So even in the social environment, like I wasn't able to really enjoy or eat was a big signal that something was mm. off, right? Um, my, in the past, I would develop really severe insomnia, but this time I didn't have the insomnia so much. Um, and then it was, I um, have the classic um, depression, anxiety. So I, I can have serious panic attacks where I feel as though something is sitting on my chest and I can't get enough breath into my chest. Mm -hmm. So um, I think for me, it was more of a cascading effect of things starting to, um, in a sense, slow down. Um, but that's part of my task now is to, it's the, it's the big mystery. What are the big road signs that I should be looking out for mm. right? daily? Um, mm -hmm. I know appetite is certainly one appetite and taste, right? Um, while I was in, in Paris, um, for the month, there were, there was a period of, I had a lot of friends coming to visit me at different points and, um, I had like nine or 10 days on my own. And I could just start to feel myself not really eating well, meaning eating much of anything. Mm. And my girlfriend had checked in and she said, you know, how are you doing? And I said, you know, I don't really have an appetite. And for her, that was like the warning sign, right? And she's like, yeah. you've got it, you've got to eat. And so, it, you know, I'm, I'm starting to put it together in a sense. Um, but because again, it's, it's, mental health, there's still so much unknown. I have to base this base, you know, on my experience, right? How mm -hmm. I feel and how my body and my mind responds to different things. Um, uh, my concentration goes like now it's back. You know, I think I, I was writing about this in social media. Um, I read all the time. And when I was depressed, I, I I couldn't even read a sentence. Mm. And as part of my way of coming back um, was rereading old books that I had read probably a thousand times. So I was rereading a lot of um, Jane Austen, right? Mm -hmm. They were familiar books that I knew so well, and yet I was able to read. Um, so concentration goes. For me, that's a huge signal. Um, appetite goes, huge signal. Um, mm. the, the signal between, you know, like hunger and sending the message to my brain has never been very strong, but then it goes away completely. Um, and that's a, a huge red flag for me. 
So I think everybody has different different um, reactions. So it's hard to say. Yeah. Like you both said also, is um, one of the main issues behind the stigma is, for example, like nothing, it's not talked about in school. You know, we, talk, we learn about bones and if you break a bone, it's bad and your heart and your lungs have to function a certain way. But we don't talk about Adamer, so we don't have much of an, edu- an education on the topic of mental health as adults. And and also, I'm guilty of it. Like something, you know, someone is saying, I don't feel well, or, you know, I'm, I might be depressed or whatever. And I don't know, it's, I'm getting better at it. But I know I've said that many times before, you know, like, oh, you're just being lazy in bed, or, you know, like, or just get up and do something like what can you do it like just get up and do it you know like really brutal things that are not helping I, I think at all and and we need to be kinder and more compassionate as people to stop that because it's probably really counterintuitive to I was actually that. going to say is I didn't know to bring it up or not but so I was depressed um how many years ago now five years ago 2017 2017 something awful happened um but for about eight or nine months I just same I was in bed all the time didn't get up didn't want to do anything like cried all day just didn't see the point in living honestly it was pretty bad and it's hard to explain to someone who's never been depressed what it feels like and I feel like unless you've been there you can't really feel compassion and I know that sounds bad maybe but I think unless you've actually being there you don't really understand how bad it is and someone just saying I'll get out of bed you're like no but I can't like it's not a choice like I want to I just can't physically do it and you feel like you're trapped in your bed like you physically cannot move you can but you can't and it's such a weird yeah I don't I don't understand it like it's it's still like it's it is really hard to get when you've never experienced it yeah yeah and I you know so this summer my husband and I had a really interesting moment um, he said to me one day, we were on Martha's Vineyard in our summer plays. I'm spending hours in bed, right? Just hours mm. in bed. He said to me one day, he said, why don't you get out of bed and sit out on the patio for a little bit? And I just turned to him and I said, depression doesn't work that way. Yeah. And he said for him, it was a real moment of like clarity, Right. That what he thought was helpful and a simple act of just sitting out on the deck, right, in in a deck chair for just a little bit of sun, he thought was helpful. And I'm like, depression doesn't work that way. Like, it's not, you know, he couldn't understand that that was an impossible thing for me to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's reminding, sorry, it's reminding me actually something. So when I went through my depression, there was one, like whenever I left the house, it was to go food shopping or to do something. I never just left the house for a walk. It just didn't happen. And this was during summer and towards the end of my depression, I remember I sat outside just to sit outside, just to be in the sun. And I'm going to cry thinking about it, but I cried because I was like, oh my God, I'm outside for no reason apart from being outside. Oh, <laughs> but it's, it's weird how like, sorry, someone else take over. <laughs> no, it's okay. But that was a big moment, right? And it's insane insane that, like, like, sitting outside for five minutes was, like, a huge moment for me. Even now, five years later, I'm still crying about it because it was... 
Anyway, we need to talk more about you. <laughs> this is your episode. No, I tell you, so when I was in the throes of it, my girlfriend was great. She would she would call me every day, and she said to me, "So maybe today you can take a shower, but only if yeah. you feel up to it." And I was like, "Okay." And she goes, "I'm going to call you back in two hours." And I said, "All right." She called back in two hours. She goes, so how'd it go? And I said, well, I didn't take a shower. I couldn't do it. And, you know, yeah. the great thing was she had no judgment. She was like, that's all right. Maybe we can try for tomorrow, right? Yeah. Mm. And eventually at some point I did get up and was able to take a shower. Now, most people listening to this are going to be like, what is wrong with her that she couldn't get up and take a shower? But when you are in a state of depression, that's a lot. Right. Yeah. Um, the act of getting out of bed only to go to the bathroom, right, um, was a lot, and to do it consciously because I knew I probably should have, right, required a lot of strength, and and I think that's something that most people, unless they've experienced that kind of paralysis, almost, right. Yeah. Um can't relate to it because they're like what do you mean you can get out of bed and take a shower right <laughs> it had been five days like what are you thinking and it's like yeah. well if it were that easy then it would be that easy right um because when i'm functioning i function at the highest level and and it's um and i think that's also the disconnect rosie is that people start to forget that you have mental illness because it's it can be because i function so well right they can almost yeah. convince themselves oh. of the fact that she's back to normal she's that was a one off that was a blip right yeah and they don't understand that it's an illness that has to be managed and um. so i think it was as shocking for my husband when i had this relapse as it was for me because yeah. in his mind, I'd been doing so well for almost 10 years, right? Mm. And that for him to be like, oh, my God, she can't get out of bed and is barely eating, right? And I was eating terrible things. The only thing I ate, this is so horrible, but I, would, <laughs> I mean, no, but it's because I have no sense of taste. So I was eating a pack of ramen noodles every day because it was so high in sodium. It was the one thing I could taste. Right, mm -hmm. that I could actually force down, and my husband was watching. He was just horrified because I don't ever eat like that. He's like, "You have to eat something else," and I'm like, "I, I, I, I don't want to eat anything. This is like the only thing I can manage to put down because it's got so much sodium. I can actually taste something, right?" Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's hard, and and I'll say this: I mean, living with mental illness is hard. But I think it's really hardest for those that live with you because it's so silent. And like you said, it's hard to diagnose. It can, it, it, it changes you in ways that can really, um, people find very upsetting. Like my mom finds it incredibly upsetting, you know, as any mother mm. would. I think my husband finds it incredibly upsetting, you know, when I'm in a state like that. The good news is I keep saying I didn't end up back in hospital, right? 
Um, I was able to get out of bed after about a week. Um, and I'm functioning, you know, I'm not fully a hundred percent there yet, but I'm getting close and mm. that's huge. Right. Yeah. So, um, it, it's, it's a very, very hard disease for the person who suffers, but I also think it's the hardest for those who love you because they can't understand it. Like you said, my husband couldn't mm. understand why I couldn't sit outside, you know, mm. um, not because he doesn't care or he's callous, but just in his mind, it's just hard to reconcile the vibrant wife that he lives with right normally is now in bed and can barely get up to go to the bathroom. Yeah, and you feel so helpless in this case because you, you're trying with the little tools that you have, you're trying to come up with solutions, but they're not working and it's, and it's really frustrating and hard to see someone that you love being in this state and you don't understand and you don't know what to do and everything you suggest is just not doing anything is it's, yeah, it's really confusing um as well for yeah it's hard yeah. and it was um uh my son had the had the fun he had the best response because you know it freaked him out and mm. we i finally was able to get out of bed and i asked him to drive me and we could go to a farmer's market on the island we were on martha's vineyard in her summer place and um and I, i was talking about it with him openly and i said you know tay if i could if i could just be normal i i would i would wish that's what i would wish for and my son says to me normal's overrated mom <laughs> which i thought was like the sweetest most awesome response from an 18 year old right that yeah. you know normal is overrated mom that um that the things that make me talented in the ways that i am are also the very reasons why mm. i have my illness mm. you know um so it was a really wonderful moment <laughs> the last thing i would like to talk about is your pretty new ish podcast um and i can see after talking to you where this post where this podcast is coming from i understand the genesis behind it and everything but a few months ago you started the phoenix tales podcast every week you interview women so they can share the you created a safe space for them to share the stories and to really empower them and and you can get from the title and from your story the the idea but yeah can you tell us how you came up with this podcast and yeah why what's your vision about it yeah i um so um my marketing people wanted me to do these instagram live tease and talk about myself and i think i did two of them and i finally turned to them and i said i would rather take my knuckles and rub them up and down the sidewalk than do that anymore right and um and and i, and I said but i i get why you want me to to do a podcast or like to, to talk to people but i don't want to talk about myself 
I said, but I do know a gazillion fascinating women who have incredible stories to tell. So I just started to reach out to friends and ask them if they would do these Instagram live shows with me. And I came up with this title of Phoenix Tales um, uh, because I love that sort of the metaphor of the phoenix, right? And I think women um, more than men have this incredible capacity for reinvention. Um, and it seemed like the apt sort of metaphor for the stories that I knew that some of them had to tell. So we did about 10 of them and I'm kind of slow on the uptake about most things. My husband has been on me to do a podcast for years and I'm like, what am I going to talk about? You know, like, I don't want to talk about myself. Um, and my son was the same thing. And I think about like eight or nine episodes into these Instagram live things, I started to think that maybe there was actually something there that a um. podcast would be a possible uh, venue for these stories. And, and I remember sitting at dinner with them saying, you know, I'm thinking about turning, you know, Phoenix Tales into a podcast because I also hate being on video. So it was like torture for me every, you know, every week or whatever it was that we were doing it. And, um, and, you know, and I think the response from my son and my husband was like, Jesus Christ, finally, you know, like, <laughs> it only takes you forever to get to you. And I'm like, I have about to come. time, right, exactly. I'm like, well, I have to come to it at my own, you know, at my own pace. So uh, we basically pivoted and the, the next guest became our first guest. And I sort of uh, is a friend of mine who's a, a novelist. And I said, hey, can you hold on? I think we're going to turn this into a podcast. So there was a lot of me running, like uh, learning on the job, so to speak, right? I finally found a really good team of um, an editing team based in Canada. And um, I think we had like eight episodes recorded and edited before we launched the podcast. Mm. Mm. And it wasn't my intention to launch it every week, but... It was their suggestion and, and, you know, we're still at the state w stage where we are releasing it every week. And I think that I can probably continue the pace of it. And really it's an opportunity for women to, it's my way of letting them feel empowered in their own stories. Right. Uh -huh. And um, hopefully in that story, other women will feel empowered. And I guess you could say the genesis of the philosophy behind it is based on a lot of my own experience of survival, right? Um, mm -hmm. Survival of mental illness and surviving with mental illness. Um, but it's also born out of a place of, I think women, sorry, Jeremy, unlike <laughs> men, um, have this incredible capacity to live a multitude of lives. Right. And, and I think that they have such fascinating stories to tell. And um, who knows, down the road, I may hire a male host and have a Phoenix Tales for men. Um, I could kind of see that happening. Um, but right now, I'm really focused on women, um, because I do think that women have 
um, incredible stories of just survival and reinvention that um, I think that can inspire other women, really, and other people. Um, so that's where the project was sort of born from. And I, I guess we're, I don't know how many episodes in now, um, it's released every week on Thursday. Um, all women, incredible guests. I've had writers. Um, I've had, obviously, yoga people. I've had um, doctors. I mean, just uh, the multitude of people, of women who've faced challenges and in their sort of incredible ways of overcoming, but not just overcoming, but also learning from. Mm-hmm. I've listened to a couple of episodes and you, you're very well spoken. I mean, you, you speak amazingly for a start. You're an amazing, you're really, really good host. And but also, yeah, the, the stories of like one of them was like a cancer survivor, for example, uh, like some stories like that are really obviously moving and, and, and those stories you don't hear very often, you know, and, and you, but you create a really safe space for those women to really open up and be vulnerable and, and, and share the story without holding much back. And that's what makes it, I think, really even better, you know, cause you're not staying at a surface level. You're going deep into feelings and emotions and what they went through and stuff like that. And that's what makes it, I think, a great podcast and and you know you're actually going into speaking about what matters not just i'm not feeling okay stuff like that yeah and i um i work i work really hard to um create that space for them and i'm always surprised um because a lot of the interviews had done the instagram live shows and then when they sat down for the podcast gave very different you know answers right Um, even beyond what they had thought that they would talk about and you know and as a writer obviously as i'm sort of i'm always crafting the narrative in the back of my head as i'm asking the questions but i also allow the story to kind of unfold um based on sort of where they're going with it um and it's it's a it's a really wonderful thing to have them because they have, and, and I think the thing that I find so that I'm really immensely proud of is that they all feel good about it afterwards. Yeah. You know, that they, they're like, that was great that they got to share parts of themselves that, that they don't get to share in in their everyday lives like you share fractured pieces of that same story right with your friends or but you don't get to share it in sort of its totality in a way uh one of my guests who's well known she said to me that her friends who'd known her for decades were emailing her and saying oh my god like they had known her for decades and they still to, to hear the full scope of her experience was a, was amazing, right? Mm. And for me, that's um, that's really cool. Like that makes me happy to hear that 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 that's the response they're getting from people that they know and that have known them yeah. a long time. So, yeah, I I, I 
Yeah, I totally understand what you mean. We we had those kind of response with a few people, especially, um, and also with friends. And yeah, it's, it's interesting how sometimes it's also very unexpected. I don't know if you had that, but you 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 go to talk about a topic and and then you 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 know the the conversation takes a turn and and you go deeper into something and it becomes amazingly good, even you know it's it's really unexpected but yeah when people open up and are safe to share openly whatever they're going through that's what that's when the magic happens <laughs> yeah and i think um and i think part of you guys know this part of the, your job as you know the host is to not intervene right to allow like you're guiding the narrative very gently mm. but not um in a hard, heavy-handed way right yeah. and you give them space to talk and it's in it's in their own sort of as they're talking that these little gems will sort of appear right and you'll be like oh i want to go back to that and ask her about yeah. that right <laughs> you know what i mean like you have those moments where you're, and they're and it's unexpected for them because you're actually giving them space to kind of talk about something that you know they've experienced that obviously means a lot to them um so as the as a host your job is as much to kind of sit back and allow them space as well as gently guiding them as much as possible so that you're kind of creating uh, a narrative that will be interesting. You also learn a lot as well. Like I've learned so much from the guests that we've spoken to. There's like so many little life lessons that I'm just like, oh my God, that's genius. <laughs> <laughs> and you're so young, so I am envious. <laughs> if only I'd learned some of that stuff at your age, right? <laughs> you have something on your website. I can't remember the the exact sentence but something along the line of you had a ho as a host or providing or you're lending a here to those people something like that um and i thought it was really yeah like yeah. a space for them to feel empowered in their own stories and and i think as women especially um you know and this this is not a diss but you know ordinary women are extraordinary mm -hmm. right I mean, that's yeah. kind of my philosophy. It's that just because somebody's not on television or whatever, these are ordinary women who are extraordinary and have had extraordinary uh -huh. challenges and have, have done extraordinary things. And it's, it's for me an honor to be able to present those stories out there, to put them out into the public, because um, I don't know about you, but I don't really need to hear any more about so-and-so Kardashian or you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I want to hear real yeah. stories from real people who've experienced some, some challenges and, and more importantly grown and changed from them. So yeah, that's sort of where I, I come at it um, and my philosophy behind it. Um, so we'll see where it goes. We'll see how long it, you know, <laughs> we'll keep it up. We'll see. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. I've, thoroughly enjoyed it i'm sorry about the crying right. <laughs> but, <laughs> don't be sorry but thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for being so honest and open and yeah it's just been wonderful to get to know you more and yeah i really enjoyed it thank you so much for taking the time for doing that with us today of course and um stay in touch because i want to hear about your travels 
Yeah. yeah. I've got one last question before we finish the episode. Uh, question we ask everyone. If you could have a conversation with anyone, dead or alive, that you think is the most interesting person ever in your eyes, who would you pick and why? I want to say my maternal grandmother. I didn't, I didn't grow up with grandparents on either side. And I think my maternal grandmother is somebody I would love to have known. And I would love to ask her questions. Um, her, yeah, I, I don't know why, but I've always been drawn to my maternal grandmother because mm. um, probably because I didn't grow up with grandparents. Um, and she's somebody that um, she died when my mother was, I think, about 18. And um, I think it was my grandmother's family who were actually quite wealthy and uh land owners in Seoul. So I would really love to ha have a conversation with her about her life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing everything and to really be honest and vulnerable and, and personal about your story. Um, it is something that should be talked more Uh, it is something that millions of people are experiencing and yeah it's here it's part of life uh, we have a lot of taboo and cliche around it no thank you for having me it's been um it's been great to know you guys and get to know you i'm gonna be watching your travels as you document things so um thank you yeah definitely let's all stay in touch Yes. We really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Um, if you did, we'll leave all of Juliana's contact information in the show notes, website, Instagram, anything Podcast. else we can find, podcast, <laughs> the books, everything. We'll leave it linked down below. Um, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. Bye. Bye. <laughs>